right, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here with all of you and have this time in God's Word and celebrating the resurrection of His Son on the first day of the week. Let's open in prayer. We come before you, Father, thankful that there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we've been reconciled to you, no longer enemies, but friends who can enter boldly into the, your throne room. And I pray we'd see this worship service as a time such as that, where we come near to you to hear you speak to us through your word. We're in an, an awkward season, a difficult one, that we long to have over so that we can be together again with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray as I'd bring this discussion uh, to an end regarding the direction the leadership in the church has taken, that any further truth you'd have revealed to us would become clear. And I pray if we come here today with anything that conflicts with your word, that it would be um, disregarded, including even anything in my sermon. If I was to say something that doesn't align with Scripture, would not be from you, then I pray that it would bear no witness in people's hearts. But I continue to pray that if I'm rightly dividing your word and, this is, and that this is what you would say to your people, that it would bear witness and produce fruit. We're, we're all really being forced to do things we don't want to do. But in a sense, that's what the life of your son was like. It was one of submission. It was a life of, of uh, daily doing what he didn't want to do, and especially as he came to the end. But he was submissive to your will and was willing to endure all things that you had for him. And I pray we'd have that same spirit, one willing to endure what you have for us. But we continue to pray that it could be lifted, the quarantine and social distancing, and that you'd prevent the virus from spreading, so, uh, and that we'd be able to be together, Lord, and to worship you. And we thank you for this time to use me as your vessel to speak to your people, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right, the title of this morning's sermon is The Narratives Supporting the Imperatives. On Wednesday, April 29th, the elders joined me in the sanctuary to share with all of you that at this point in time, we feel led to submit to the government's restrictions, or to obey, you might say, versus disobey, but not to... Um, endure this time passively, or you might say just roll over. We do, did see many things that we could do along with praying and fasting. We could also be appealing to our leaders as we've been doing. There could be a point at which we disobey. We don't, and I've stated in the last few sermons, different instances in which we would disobey, but we don't believe that we've reached that point yet. Maybe we will. We tend to project ourselves on others, and because if I was in your position and I was looking at my elders um, coming to the conclusion that they did, I would be interested in the background to it. In other words, I'd want to understand how they uh, made this decision. And so in the last, I felt, you could say, I, I believed you were entitled to understand how we came to this decision. And so that's really what the last couple sermons have been about, re- explaining why we feel led to appeal and to submit versus rebel or versus disobey. And this will be the third and final sermon on this topic. I think there's more material that I could share. I'm not going to be able to cover the different, all of the examples that I like to cover. We probably could have a few sermons um, covering the narratives that support the imperatives, but I don't think that it would necessarily be beneficial. I feel like people are pretty settled where they are, and uh, we can move on after this. One thing I've shared with you is that there are godly people on both sides of this issue, and it seems that those godly people can quote other godly people, so it's very difficult to determine what should be done. And I also, but I also thought you were entitled to understand why, why I came to the conclusion that I did, and the reason related largely to imperatives versus narratives, and the belief that we should build our theology with imperatives that's supported by narratives. And when I say imperatives, what I mean are commands. When I refer to narratives, I'm referring to accounts, primarily ones in the Old Testament, but also some in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We should build our theology with imperatives or commands, such as Romans 13, or, and the commands that would apply to us in this situation, or the imperatives that would apply to us, apply to us in this situation would be Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3. Build our theology with those imperatives, and then look for narratives that support the imperatives versus the other way around. And it just seemed to me that as I listened to these arguments, and there, was, there have been many of them, the individuals who were on the other side seemed to be building their theology with narratives, like um, Daniel 6, Acts 5, and then, and it, it seemed to me at least, 
somewhat disregarding or minimizing the imperatives. And I, don't, and I don't think we should do it that way. And so after spending the last two weeks looking at some of the imperatives, 1 Peter 2 in the first sermon, Romans 13 in the second sermon, we also wanted to discuss those narratives that support the imperatives that had been so um, influential on our decision that Sunday night when, when the elders and our wives were together talking about this. Because when we were together, we did consider many narratives that supported the imperatives. In other words, we did consider many accounts that agreed with the decision that, that we felt led to, to follow. And this morning, we'll look at some of those narratives or some of those accounts. Again, I couldn't cover all of them, but I've, I'm going to look to three of them to share with you. I want to begin in Exodus 1, if you want to turn there. Exodus 1. We'll begin at verse 15. Exodus 1.15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, it's unbelievably evil, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They disobeyed and they let the male children live. And this is similar to other accounts that discuss disobedience to authority, such as Daniel 6, when he disobeyed and he went before his window and prayed, or Acts 5, when the apostles were told not to preach, and this, they disobeyed and they preached anyway. And I want to briefly look at this account. We're going to move forward to discuss Moses with Pharaoh, but I wanted to begin with this account to repeat the same point that I've made at the beginning of each sermon, and this brings us to lesson one, we don't submit to sin. These verses give me the opportunity to repeat something that I've shared at the beginning of each sermon, we don't submit to sin. And as elders, if we feel or felt the government wanted us to sin, then we would not submit, we would disobey. Understandably, when discussing submission, the nagging question in the back of our minds is how far does submission extend or how far should we be willing to go? And I said we're submitting now, but that doesn't mean we'll submit forever. And the account with the Hebrew midwives is a premier example of disobedience to authority or, or disobeying or rebelling when being told to sin. One of the other <clears throat> accounts that um, comes up understandably, regularly, not in Scripture, but in history, would be Nazi Germany. And when the Nazis were commanding people to murder the Jews, and you'll, you'll hear about this, there's interestingly similarities with Exodus 1. I mean, in both accounts, you've got Jews. You've got a government, or you've got an authority, whether it's, not, whether it's Hitler or whether it's Pharaoh, who is commanding the death of God's people, of Jews, and the idea is kind of this, that the people who hid the Jews were disobeying the government, were not submitting to the government, and the people who killed them, killed the Jews in Nazi Germany, were obeying the government or were submitting to authority. Well, as I've set up to this point regarding the account with Daniel, we haven't been told not to pray like Daniel was told not to pray. And like the account in Acts 5, we haven't been told not to preach the gospel. If we were told not to preach the gospel, we would still preach the gospel. And we also haven't been told to murder, whether like Hitler uh, commanded his people in Nazi Germany or like Pharaoh did in Egypt. Uh, if we were told to murder anyone, then that would be an instance that we would disobey. Go ahead and turn a couple chapters to the right to Exodus 3. We're going to begin around verse 18. The context as God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And look what Moses, look what God says to Moses. He says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So Pharaoh was the authority over the Israelites in Moses' day when they were in Egypt, which was God's plan for them. This was where God wanted them and had them for those four centuries, as we talked about in a sermon some months back. Until the wickedness of the Amorites was through, God's plan was to, to have them there until the Canaanites or Amorites 
deserve the judgment that the Israelites were going to unleash. And in, and in the meantime, Pharaoh was the authority over Israel. And God sent Moses to Pharaoh to appeal to him. This brings us to lesson two. Lesson two, Moses appealed to Pharaoh. Lesson two, Moses appealed to Pharaoh. At least four times that I could find, but I suspect that there are probably more in Exodus. Moses requested that Pharaoh allow the nation of Israel to be released so that they could do what? So they could sacrifice, so they could serve, so they could worship. And so interestingly, there are some similarities between our appeal to the governor and Moses, or excuse me, and Moses' appeal to Pharaoh. He requested that the people be released or be able to worship their Lord, and that's really our request too. Look at verse 19. I know that the king of Egypt, this is interesting, will not let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand, and that might be part of your prayers for this situation, that God compels the authority over us with a mighty hand for us to be able to worship. It's worth noticing that from the beginning, God told Moses that Pharaoh would not release the people. And so this is what's interesting to me. God could have wiped out Egypt with these plagues. He could have done that from the beginning. He could have simply jumped right to that last plague that did, in fact, cause uh, Pharaoh to release the Hebrews. But instead, he first had Moses go to Pharaoh and appeal to him repeatedly. And our plan is to repeatedly appeal to the governor to allow us to worship. We sent one letter. We plan on sending more. We've called for one day of fasting. I anticipate that should things continue um, with us being unable to worship, I mean, it's promising that there have been, or encouraging at least, that there have been some restrictions lifted. We're looking to, you'll receive the guidelines this week. I don't know, we don't know, haven't decided or been able to put them together and know exactly what it's going to look like, but it is encouraging that home fellowships can resume. Uh, should things, should that not be the case, then we will probably call for another day of fasting. Look at Exodus 5.2 to see what happened after Moses appealed to Pharaoh. Turn to Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Moses said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. I'm convinced many of our politicians, whether at the state or the federal level, do not know God any better than uh, Pharaoh did. I think pastors or Christians could appeal to them and, and say, this is what God wants. It is God's desire for his people to be able to worship. And these individuals could probably say word for word what Pharaoh said here to Moses. But my point in mentioning this is simply that that didn't change anything for Moses. He was still expected to appeal. He was still expected to appreciate or recognize the authority that Pharaoh had over the nation of Egypt. And I would say it doesn't change our appeal, the fact that we have godless men in authority over us. Now watch something that could be very instructive for us. Verse 4 Exodus 5, 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose that same number on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. And that's why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. And so here's what stuck out to me. Moses appealed to Pharaoh. He was doing God's will. He didn't have to wonder if this is what God wanted, because this is what God told him he wanted. But Pharaoh still did not let the people go. Instead, things actually got what? They got worse. And I'm mentioning this because even though things weren't going the way Moses wanted, it didn't mean that he was doing anything wrong. 
It didn't mean that he was outside God's will, and it didn't mean that he should do anything different. We're appealing, and maybe things won't go the way we want. I'm generally in the same camp as Pastor Nathan, who shared that we're blessed to see God's fingerprints on the recent events because we have been fasting and praying. We don't think that we're the only Christians to be doing so, but it's a wonderful thing to see a church fast and pray and then see things work or see the appeal working in the way that in regarding what we're fasting and praying for. But the reason that I mention this to you with Moses and Pharaoh is really to encourage you because anytime as a pastor, maybe you can suspect this, and I'll just be transparent with you about it, that you invite your church to fast and pray, you know in the back of your mind that it might not go the way that you want, or you know that God might not answer. He might not answer the way you want, or he might not answer as quickly as you want. And then your concern is really for your people, because you wonder if this will cause them to doubt or might even create some amount of unbelief in their hearts, or they might lack confidence then in prayer when they don't see things going the way that they want. And I just want you to be reminded of this account, that we can be in God's will, we can be doing what He wants, we can be appealing the way that He would desire, and there's definitely no guarantee, there was no guarantee in Moses' day, that everything's going to happen or unfold as quickly as we would want. But it's not to say that we're outside God's will, or that we should do anything differently, or that God is at all displeased with any of our efforts any more than he was with Moses's. And, I, and I'm, it was confusing to Moses. He'd actually been told that Pharaoh would not let them go. He saw his, the affliction of his people increase, and he went back to God with this confusion. So it can be confusing. Why wouldn't God allow us to worship? Why would he allow these restrictions? We know he's sovereign. We know that he can lift them. Why it, 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 is as, it is or can be as confusing for us as it was for Moses in his day. Look at the second example by turning to 1 Samuel 24. Look at the second example by turning to 1 Samuel 24. Here's the background. David and his men are on the run from Saul, who's mobilized the army of the nation of Israel to kill David, or really to kill David and his men. And Saul, unknowingly, he enters this cave that David and his men were hiding in. Look with me at verse 4, 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. So his men, David's men, are telling him that God has said, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What did David's men basically say to him? God, God wants you to kill Saul. This is the day that God has given you to kill Saul. And what's interesting about this? It looked that way, didn't it? I mean, if you don't believe in coincidences, then how do you explain Saul wandering of all the caves in, in the Judea that he could have wandered into? He happens to wander into the one that David and his men are hiding in. He enters by himself. He is practically incapacitated while he relieves himself. And so it would have been a very easy thing for David to silently, privately execute Saul. Nobody would know. And when his men see him rise with his sword in his hand, and he moves very quietly towards Saul, what do you think his men thought? They thought, well, this is it. This is the day that we have been waiting for. Our exile can come to an end. We've been away from our homes. We've been away from our family. We, we have been away from our friends. We can return home now. We don't need to be afraid for our lives anymore. We don't have to be at war against the nation that we love. David can become king. We can serve at his right hand. For what reason? Because God has delivered David's enemy into his hand, and it really, truly looked this way. When David's men said this to David, that is exactly how it looked, or exactly what we might expect God to say to David. But instead, David moved to Saul, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. Look at verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So he was convicted just by this very small act that he had committed, apparently in his mind somewhat threatening against the Lord's anointed. And I suspect if you're familiar with David, 
there's probably been at least one or two times in your Christian life when you have wondered why he could do some of the things that he did, this particularly the adultery with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, one of his mighty men, Uriah, and still be called what? I mean, given one of the greatest titles that any individual in Scripture or history could really desire for himself, the man after God's own heart. My suspicion is you're looking at one of the premier moments in David's life that allowed him to be the man after God's own heart. Both the sensitivity of his spirit to conviction from God. I mean, I have to look at this and wonder what would it take for my heart to convict me? Would I be convicted in a moment like this? And also this sort of deference, this sort of recognition and appreciation for God's, for the authority that God had given to this man. The, the appreciation for this individual and all of his ungodliness, and that's what Saul was, especially at this moment, being the Lord's anointed. And so verse 6, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is, I mean, how many times we're going to read this, the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, and he left the cave, and he went on his way. Now, I'm not going to tell you that President Trump or Governor Inslee or any other politicians are the Lord's anointed, but I'm going to say this. He's given these individuals authority, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it. There's no denial, or there's no denying that these individuals have authority, and that it's authority that God himself has given them. And as David recognized the authority of Saul, we must recognize the authority that God has put over us. If you look at verse 8, it says, Afterward, David also arose. He went out of the cave. He called after Saul, and he said, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David calls to him. He calls him my Lord. He calls him my king. He bows to the ground. He pays him homage. This is a gracious and humble appeal that would be impressive if it was being made to a godly man. But you've got to acknowledge how much more impressive it is because it's being made to such an ungodly man. And so what I would say is during this season, you're being tested regarding the authority you recognize of ungodly individuals because there's really no test associated with appreciating the authority of godly people. Who can't do that? Any of us can do that. Why is Jesus lifted out of the Gospels and placed in Peter's epistle for us as an example, except from when he stood before whom? Pilate, Caiaphas, terribly ungodly men, yet still with an amount of... If you think about Saul, I was reading in Acts the other day, and Saul, apparently he had an eye problem. This is my best understanding of what transpired in the account. And he didn't know that he's speaking to the high priest. And he disrespects him, not knowing who he was. And what Saul said was true, and he, he gets slapped for his words. And then Saul is told, or now Paul, is told that he was speaking to the high priest. And immediately he repents. He owns that he should not have spoken to the high priest this way. Why? Because the high priest didn't deserve it? No, he quoted scripture. I think it's Exodus, might be Exodus 24 or 28, that says that you're not to bring that sort of accusation against someone in authority. Peter, when Peter wants to condemn individuals, I believe it's in 2 Peter 2, it might be verse 10, he wants to condemn individuals who are in the same category as false teachers. He says they despise authority. They bring accusations against authority. And so the moment that Paul learned who he had been speaking to, he immediately 
apologizes for bringing this accusation against him. And why is that? Did, did, Saul, did Paul have some affection for the man? No, but he had respect for his position and the authority that God had given him. And so David says, my Lord, the king, he bows to the ground, he pays him homage. And this brings us to lesson three, David appealed to Saul. David appealed to Saul. And then go ahead and turn to Second Samuel 20, or turn to 1 Samuel 26, excuse me. Two chapters to the right, 1 Samuel 26, to see the second appeal. Here's the context. David and his nephew Abishai sneak into Saul's camp when Saul's sleeping, and they're standing right next to Saul. Apparently they must have whispered this. Look at verse 8. Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So once again, we've got someone telling David to execute Saul, and once again, we've got someone saying it's God's will for David to execute Saul, and I would say once again, it looks like this would be God's will for David to execute Saul. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Notice this with me. Read this. We're going to read this twice. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will come down into battle and perish. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. And David's words greatly encourage me, and they should greatly encourage you too. And here's why. While we're submitting to authority, perhaps authority we don't like or don't agree with, and I don't mean this remotely jokingly, we can say what David said. You can be encouraged by these words, the words that David shared with Abishai. It's as though they could be shared with us. As the Lord lives, the Lord can strike him, or as they will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, God can deal with any man who is in authority. It is not beyond his ability, whether that man is Governor Inslee or anyone else. If God wants to remove a politician and he wants to replace him with someone else, if God wants to remove Governor Inslee and he wants to replace him with Joshua Freed, can God do that? He can, absolutely. If God wanted an individual, and I'm not wishing this for anyone, but if he wants to bring someone, if he wants to remove someone from office, he can prevent that person from being elected or reelected, or he can also bring someone's life to an end. He counts our breaths. He owns them. He can cause them to stop. And so if he wants to remove someone, replace him, he can do that. But until he does, unless we're commanded to sin, then we're expected to submit. We're expected to appreciate that authority. Be like David. Recognize the authority of the office. We talk about walking by faith and trusting God, and this is what it looks like to do so. I, think, I, I don't think that anyone who knows me well would disagree with this. I'm generally more of a type A person. I'm a, I want to take matters into my own hands type person. Walking by faith, trusting the Lord does not come naturally for me. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our faith is put into practice. Do we trust God? Can we walk by faith? Can we pray believing that God is sovereign and he can do what he wants and what he determines is best with the authority that's over us? And the answer to that question is yes. Look at verse 11. David says, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and take the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because, because, interestingly, a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them, so God's the one who kept them asleep. David went over to the other side and stood afar off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called out to the army, so they're all sleeping. Picture what this looked like. It would have been a very dramatic moment to observe. David and all of his men are in the camp. 
or Saul and his men are in the camp sleeping. God had kept them asleep. Now he's going to allow them to wake. David moves some distance away. He calls out and stands on the top of this hill and yells to Saul's camp, but he doesn't address Saul. It says he yells to Abner, the son of Ner, and he says, will you not answer, Abner? And then Abner answered, and he said, who are you who calls to the king? Who is Abner? Abner is Saul's right-hand man. He is Saul's general. And so you could say that he is the guy who's most responsible with preventing anyone from wandering into the middle of the camp in the middle of the night next to Saul, taking his spear and taking his jar. And so, needless to say, this individual, Abner, is about to be embarrassed. Verse 15, David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in all Israel? Because he was Saul's general and right-hand man. Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord, referring to Abishai. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. Now notice this second appeal to Saul. Verse 18, David said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, but if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying go serve other gods. In other words, being pushed away from the religious life of the nation of Israel is almost pushing him way, pushing him toward idolatry or paganism. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek. Look at this humility. He says, I'm just a flea. You're like someone hunting a partridge in the mountains. And so another very gracious and humble appeal from David to an ungodly man. Now, here's a question. Why did David not take Saul's life twice? And the answer is contained in these two chapters the nine times that I can count that David calls Saul my Lord, my King, the seven times that David called him the Lord's anointed. And so why didn't he execute him? Because he recognized Saul's authority. And more than that, he also recognized by calling him the Lord's anointed, he also recognized that that authority came from where? From God himself. Saul did not anoint himself. And nobody else truly anointed Saul. We can, we can look to Samuel and say Samuel anointed him, but truly it was the Lord who chose him and anointed him, and David appreciated that. Many things make this account considerably more impressive than it initially looks. David kept calling Saul the Lord's anointed, and I'd ask you, who else was the Lord's anointed? David was. David recognized that Saul was king, but he knew, David knew, that God wanted David to be king. David knew that God rejected Saul as king, but David still kept respecting, respecting his authority as long as he was king. And David knew that he couldn't. This is what else is interesting. It's almost like when God told Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. How long do you think you're going to wait? Nine months, right? Ten months. David gets anointed to be the next king of Israel. How long do you think he expected to wait? I would guess probably not 15 to 20 years. And so David knew that he was to become king, and he knew that he could not become king until the previous king was done being king, or he could not receive the throne until Saul had vacated it. And he wouldn't remove Saul, though. He wouldn't lift a hand against him. And why is that? Because of his great faith. He knew that it was in God's hands, that God had put Saul on the throne, and God could remove Saul from the throne. And as long as he was on the throne, he was going to respect that authority. And so, in the meantime, he appealed to Saul, and he trusted God with the outcome. I think it must have been a very hard thing to respect Saul. If David did not respect Saul, I wouldn't fault him, but he respected the office that Saul occupied. I'll share one instance when I learned this somewhat the hard way. When I was in ROTC, so I wasn't yet an officer, I was in college, 
I was going through the Army ROTC program, I'd be commissioned and take my oath on the day that I graduated. And we used to train during ROTC by going out to the field in what were called field training, FTXs or field training exercises. And people are put in different positions of, of authority over the other cadets and you're evaluated while you're in these leadership positions. And then after each exercise, there's something called, and an exercise could last a few hours, so plenty to discuss about how well or how poorly it went, in something called an AAR, which stands for after action review. So after every single exercise, everyone comes back together, you kind of sit down, take your pack off and take your helmet off, and, and then everyone's in this circle and going to discuss what went well and what went poorly. And there was an exercise where I remember there was this cadet who had done a terrible job, not just in my estimation, but I suspect in everyone's estimation. He'd done very, very poorly. It seemed that he had not uh, prepared. He probably, hadn't, maybe he hadn't taken it seriously. And so during this AAR, I spoke up and I shared my many observations, which were really criticisms of his performance. And I half expected one of the commanding officers to acknowledge what I said and perhaps even commend my, you know, astute observations about this gentleman's military prowess, and maybe I'm even going to get complimented on my, you know, deep uh, understanding of military tactics. So I conclude speaking, and then Lieutenant Colonel Brewer, who is the commander over the entire ROTC unit, been in the military, uh, you know, close to 20 years, begins to speak. And he ripped me apart in front of everyone. I remember how humiliated I was and completely deserving of that humiliation. I don't remember one single thing that Colonel Brewer said about the gentleman, the cadets that I had talked about. Everything that came out of his mouth was about me. And one of the things he said was, even if your commanding officer is terrible, you still respect his office. Even if your commanding officer is terrible, you still respect his office. And I never forgot that. And then after the military, I found myself in different positions with individuals over me that at times I didn't respect, whether it was when I was working at Target or whether I, it was when I was an elementary school teacher. And you could listen to this and you could say, okay, Pastor Scott, well, that's all fine and good, but this isn't the military. No, it's not the military. But the Greek term, and you can look it up for yourself, for submit or for be subject is hupotasso, and it is a military term. And so when God wants to command us to submit or be subject, he uses military language. Paul talks about us considering ourselves as good soldiers. And so it is very applicable. The Greek term hupotasso refers to arranging troop divisions under a commander. Now, I don't mention this story because Lieutenant Colonel Brewer said something, and I think we should do it. I don't look back and say, well, Lieutenant Colonel Brewer is in charge, and if he said this 20 years ago, then that's what I should make sure that we're doing in the church. I mention this because it illustrates what the New Testament commands. I mention it because it is a good illustration of the New Testament imperatives that informed our decision, and not only that, is a good illustration of the narratives, such as this one with David, that support the imperatives that we're trying to follow. When I see Peter, in particular, in chapter 2, condemned so strongly those people who would despise or bring accusations against authority, then I don't want to be in that category. And I don't want to lead my, my church to be in that category either. I want to show you something interesting. Look at verse 21 to provide a little balance to this. Verse 21, Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David. For I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and I've made a great mistake. So Saul looks repentant right here, but what's the problem? <laughs> He's looked repentant before, right? He's not saying anything that he hasn't said other times. And so verse 22, David answered and he said, Here is the Spiro king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, your life was precious this day in my sight, so that my life may be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. So it's interesting. David acknowledges that he treated Saul the way that he did, 
as much for himself. He expects to be blessed. He expects God to appreciate the submission he showed to Saul. He didn't call him an ungodly man, but I would say to an ungodly man. He says, I have done this so that I have, I have kept your life as precious in my sight so that God will view my life as precious in his sight. I have delivered you, Saul, so that God would deliver me. Now, verse 25, Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David, is, David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Saul asked David to return or to come back to Jerusalem or to come back home, which is how it's translated in many Bibles. But at the end of the verse, what does it say? David what? He went his way. He didn't go back to Jerusalem. David didn't go back home, despite the promises of safety that Saul gave him. In fact, if you're familiar with the account, I'm not defending David doing this, he was actually so distrusting of Saul that he went to live with the Philistines. And why is that? Because Dave, it's, a, it's an illustration of what we discussed last week. David was a man of faith. He trusted the Lord, but he also combined it with wisdom. And so notice, David returned Saul's spear. When Saul got his spear back, though, David wouldn't bring it to him. David would not even send one of his own men to send Saul's spear back to him. And why is that? Because it's the spear that Saul had thrown at David some number of times, and despite all the promises that Saul was making at this moment, David did not trust Saul enough to go and bring him the spear himself or even send one of his men to bring it. He told Saul, you bring one of your men over here. You send one of your men, and I will give him the spear, and then he will give it back to you. Because David was going to combine wisdom with his faith. Now, I'm not going to say that David disobeyed Saul, and here's the balance, because I'm not sure that it was really an order that Saul was giving David, but I will say this, and there's no, there's no denying it. David did not trust Saul, and David did not do everything that Saul wanted. Or we could say this, David did not blindly or he did not unconditionally obey Saul or submit to him. And similarly, we're not going to blindly or unconditionally submit to authority that's over us. I'm going to use a hypothetical situation that has come up a few times. I mean, and one of the things that's been a little bit of a struggle for me, and I'm just asking you to please be charitable. In the previous sermons, I have repeatedly said, we would disobey, we would disobey, we would disobey. But I, I can't give an exhaustive list of every single scenario that would cause us to disobey. So some of the communication I get sounds like, well, you said you disobeyed that, but you didn't say you disobeyed this. Well, I, I'm not going to go through every scenario. I mean, there could be hundreds of them. We don't know what things are going to look like down the road. I've just tried to communicate that we won't submit to sin, and, there's only, and there is there's a point at which our submission would no longer extend. To give one scenario, though, for this hypothetical situation, because there's at least enough possibility of it that I think it's warranted, what if a vaccine was, was um, created and people were told they had to be vaccinated to go to church? We would not submit to that. We are never going to tell people that they would have to be vaccinated to come to church. If so, and I think some people... Very legitimately, I don't think that they're argumentative. I do not think they're contentious with me when they talk about it. They're legitimately concerned about that. And I think that's a very reasonable question or concern to have. So we are never going to tell people that they need to be vaccinated to go to church. If we need to disobey the government, I want you to imagine another hypothetical situation. Now, let me back up. Let me say this. When someone makes a decision, then they must to the best of their ability, own the consequences of that decision. And if I'll just give you a simple application of my home. Well, now I've been home a lot, but usually <laughs> I'm, in my, I'm in my office. So I'm able to be home with all of my children and own the consequences of the decisions that I make for my family. And so, but here's what was not always the case before this. If I tell, let's say, Katie or I tell the kids, I don't want you watching anything, or I don't want you playing with this, or I don't want you doing this, or I do want you doing this, and then I leave the house, 
who's forced to endure the frustration or, or with, from my kids or who's forced to then see that carried out? Katie. And so I think if a husband makes a decision for his home, then to the best of his ability, he must do what he can to bear the consequences of it. And so in this situation, if we disobey the government, and that's what we've decided, then I should go to jail for that. That should be on my shoulders because I'm the one with the authority in this position. So let's imagine hypothetically that I go to jail. Here's what I want to be able to say, whether it's to a judge or whether it's to someone else in authority. Up to this point, I have tried hard to obey laws, even when I disagreed and questioned their constitutionality. We are not rebellious people. We are not troublemakers. God commands us to live quiet, peaceful lives, and that's what we've been trying to do. We have worked hard to respect and honor the people in office because that's what God's word commands. If you listen to my sermons, which are available and online, you will see that I have repeatedly told my church to submit to government, and I have told them that you have been working for our good because that's what scripture says is the case. But this has gone too far, and now we must disobey. So in other words, if we're going to disobey, I want to be able to tell individuals in authority over us that we tried not to, or that it was a last resort, or that up until this point there has been a clear enough demonstration of obedience and submission that they could tell that this was not what we wanted. My hope is if they went and listened to my sermons or people went and they looked at my social media, they would see that my heart has been to respect the authority over us and charge my church to do the same. I would hope that there's nobody in the church that I pastor whose social media slanders the government, and there's there's a fine line here. I'm, I'm almost hesitated to discuss this. There is a fine line between sharing information whether it's news or whether it's reports, and slandering. We can share information. We are in a country where others do not have this liberty, where it's been taken from them. They should have it to free speech. But as God's people, we shouldn't be slandering. And so share, we can share. We can do it respectfully. We can do it honorably. I mean, that would be my hope that if I was going to go to jail and there was some judge that looked, I could say, and you can, look, you can look at what has come forth from the people in my church. You can look at their social media. You can listen to the things that they've said. You can look at, if, if I could even show you the, you know, conversations that we've had and you were given ear to them, you will see that our hearts have been to be peaceful, submissive people because that's what we believe that God's word commands. But now we feel like we've reached the point that we're being called to sin. Let's look at the third example by turning to Esther 3, the last historical book. Easiest way to find it is to go to the left of the poetical books, Job's and Job and Psalms. It's the last book prior to entering the poetical books. Esther 3. The context for this is the Persians are going to slaughter the Jews Exodus 3, verse 13. Excuse me, Esther 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers or messengers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So there's this decree that goes out, unbelievably, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Skip to Esther 4, 14. To see what happened next. Esther 4.14. Mordecai is speaking to Esther, and he says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, something interesting, which I've shared Uh, Many times up to this point is there's 
a considerable amount of disagreement among godly people on both sides of this issue. But one thing we can all agree on is that we must do something. I haven't heard anyone say we shouldn't do anything. Despite all the disagreement, in other words, what Mordecai is saying to Esther could be said to us. Mordecai says to her, hey, you're a Jew. You need to do something. You need to get involved. And he could say, or we could hear, or the application for us is you're Christians. You need to get involved. You need to do something. Even if that involvement looks like calling legislators, sending letters, signing petitions, praying and fasting. There are plenty of things that if you're listening to to me right now, you should have already been doing. And if you haven't, then you can start. But you need to be as involved. It's not going to look exactly the same as it did for, for Esther, but if you're one of God's people, you should hear the same charge that he gave, that Esther gave to his, to his niece, or that Mordecai gave to his niece. We've gotten involved through these letters, through praying, fasting, phone calls. Let me, think, let me ask you to think about something for a moment. The major disagreement is about when to obey and when to disobey. In other words, everyone agrees, at least that I've heard from, that we should obey authority sometimes, And everyone seems to agree that we should disobey authority sometimes. I haven't heard anyone who thinks that we should blindly and unconditionally obey authority all the time. And I've also not heard from anyone who thinks we should disobey authority all the time under any circumstances or be anarchists. And so this is what we can agree on. We can agree that there are times we should obey and there are times we should disobey. The question or disagreement seems to be regarding that line or when we move from obeying to disobeying. And I think everyone on both sides can agree that if the government was going to destroy, kill, and annihilate, that would be a time to what? Disobey. That's not a time to appeal. But here's what's interesting. In Esther's day, it was a time to appeal. They were told to destroy. They were told to kill. The government was told, telling people, destroy, kill, annihilate. Everyone would agree that that is when you disobey. Not in Esther's day. Now, I'm not saying that if the government said destroy, kill, and annihilate, that we're not going to defend ourselves or that that that's a time that we're going to appeal. But I am making an, an important point. We're considering examples of appealing versus rebelling, and you're not going to find many stronger than this. Because what could Mordecai have told Esther to do, or what could Mordecai have done himself? This is time to start the rebellion. The revolution needs to begin now. You need to tell everyone to pick up arms and fight back. This is the revolution that's going to turn things around for us while we're here in Persia. This brings us to lesson four. Esther appealed to the king. Esther appealed to the king. Look at Esther's response in chapter four, verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And this is the account probably out of all the narratives that we discussed in our elder meeting that came up the most frequently, because Esther called for her people to fast while she appealed to the king. We have called for our people to fast and pray while we appealed to the king. And something making this even more fitting is fasting is associated with prayer and mourning, and, when, and that's what we're doing. We are praying, and we're mourning. We're mourning that we can't be together. The Jews in Esther's day were mourning that they thought they'd be slaughtered, and we are mourning that we can't meet and worship the way that we'd like. It is a very fitting time. You don't need the church to ask you to fast. Fathers of their households can invite their families to be fasting. Look at Esther 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. 
while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, notice this, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The book Esther is interesting if you've never heard this before in that it's absent of almost everything you would expect to be in a Bible, in, in a book of the Bible. There's no mention of the law. There's no mention of uh, prayer. There's no mention of sacrifices. There's no mention of worship. You say, well, I, yes, there is no mention of prayer. We assume they prayed, but Esther only called for them to fast. Don't go back and read it right now. Look at it at another time, but there's no mention of prayer throughout the whole book. And one of the the oddest or most unique absences is God himself. You can read the whole book and you'll never see God, you'll never see Yahweh mentioned throughout. But what's interesting is it's almost like Esther to me is the book that instead of mentioning God, shows God working. Although you don't see him named, you see his activity as much or more than most other books throughout the rest of Scripture. And I mention that because in verse 2 when it says, Esther won favor in the king's sight, how did she win this favor? Where did that favor come from? I would say that it came from God. And we're praying that God gives us favor with Governor Inslee. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, or Governor Inslee's heart, or any politician's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And we have full confidence that God can do this in our day with anyone in authority, whether it's President Trump, Governor Inslee, or anyone else. Just to tell you what happened after this, some of you might have mentioned this earlier when I said that the Jews didn't pick up arms and start a revolution and defend themselves. You might have said, well, they did defend themselves. They did defend themselves later. You're right. If you look in chapter 9, verse 5, Esther went back to the king. She asked if the Jews could defend themselves, and the king granted it. Chapter 9, verse 5, the, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So the Jews were able to defend themselves against their enemies. They picked up arms to protect themselves. But interestingly, they appealed to be able to do so. They received a decree from the king commanding this to take place. Now there's one more place I'd like you to see. Look at Daniel 9 verse 13. That's the fourth prophet. So just start looking at the prophets and go to the fourth one, Isaiah after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Look at Daniel 9, verse 13. Daniel 9, 13. As it is written in the law of Moses... All this calamity, this is Daniel speaking in the first person, he says, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. So Daniel was discussing the calamity that had come upon his people, the Jews, which would be their exile in Babylon and then Persia. And he's afraid that there are things, certain things his people have not done as a result of this calamity. And I want to be clear about why this ministered to me so much. There's a sense in which we all want the exact same thing. And if we could say it real succinctly, it's for our lives to go back to normal, right? And who knows when or if that will ever happen. I was talking to a pastor this past week, and he said to me, he said, Scott, I don't know if our churches will ever look the same. I mean, even when we can return, there might be elderly people that never want to come back. Or, and maybe it just, we don't know if it'll ever be normal again. We're asking for that. But I know there are certain things that God wants to accomplish through the calamity that we're experiencing. And this brings us to lesson five. Let's not waste this trial. Lesson five, let's not waste this trial. We want our lives to go back to normal, the coronavirus, the accompanying quarantine, and the social distancing. It's this global calamity. It has caused problems mentally, 
emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually. The situation is bad enough. But one thing that would make it so much worse is if we went through it and we failed to learn what God wants us to learn. So as bad as things are, one thing that would make it so much worse is if we went through all of this for nothing. And whatever God wanted to produce or accomplish in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, was not accomplished. I don't know what could be a worse catastrophe because then we've experienced this for nothing. And this seemed to be Daniel's concern. As you read these verses, he was concerned for his people regarding the calamity they experienced. And if we look at what Daniel wanted for the Jews, it reveals what God wants for us too. And the reason that they're the same is this. You can look at what Daniel wanted for his people, and it's what God wants for us. And you say, well, how do you know that? I know that because God always wants the same thing. There are some foundational things that God wants from every calamity. No matter what difficulty is taking place in our lives, in our church, in our nation, or in the world, there are certain things that God wants, and those things don't change. The calamity can change, the trial can change, all the circumstances can change, but if it's, a, if it's difficult, if it's, trial, it's a, if it's a calamity, then there are certain things that God wants. And look at verse 13 to see them. Read it with me again. He says, as it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, or we could say the coronavirus, the accompanying quarantine and problems associated with it have come upon us. And he says, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Daniel was concerned that his people had not sought the Lord like they should. Now, I read this, and I suspect that we have not sought the Lord like we should. I know for my part that I haven't prayed as much as I should. He says we haven't turned from our iniquities. This is a very concise definition of repentance. And so Daniel knew that his people had not repented like they should. And I have to wonder, have we repented like we should? Are we allowing this to be a time that our sins are exposed and we turn from them like God would desire? He goes on to say, gaining insight by your truth. So Daniel knew his people should be gaining spiritual insight from God's truth, which is to say from the word of God. And I would ask, how are we gaining insight? Or where are we gaining insight from? So follow the coronavirus, follow the updates, tune into the briefings and so forth if you want but you should not be clinging to them like you should be clinging to God's word. It would be better for you to turn off the news and never read another update if you could just cling and hold to God's word and the truth that he reveals. That's what equips us. That's what we need. That's what has to be the anchor for us. So be informed, be educated, but cling to God's word. Like Daniel said, gain insight by God's truth. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and he has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. So Daniel said that God brought this on his people because they hadn't done these, these things. I've been cautious to say this because I don't think, I think you can become a false prophet when you apply motive to God that he hasn't clearly revealed. But I will say this, when you look at the pages of scripture and calamity or pestilence is brought it's typically because of sin. God brought pestilences and calamities and disasters on his people because of sin. He wanted to see humility. He wanted to see repentance. I don't think anyone should object if God brought this because of sin. If the coronavirus or any virus or any sickness or plague or disease comes upon us, I don't think there's anyone who can object and say, well, we have been so righteous, we don't deserve this. So our final sermon explaining the elders' decision, and I want to close by saying this. Many people have said we are being tested, and I absolutely agree with that. My hope is that we don't waste this test by failing to learn what God wants us to learn. The worst thing would be to go through this for nothing. So instead, let's, here's the test to pass. Yes, we're being tested, and if you want to pass the test, then humble yourself. Pray repent of sin, and seek insight and truth from God's word so that you can learn everything that he wants you to learn through this. 
Father, we thank you that despite any difficulties we experience, whatever calamities or trials or plagues or pestilences might come upon us, that you use them to produce good in our lives and our marriages and our families and in our churches. And we want to learn everything that you want us to learn from this. We're not going to be getting that from the internet, and we're not going to be getting that from any news agencies or any updates or briefings that we can tune into. We're only going to be getting these truths from your word and your Holy Spirit working in our hearts and lives. I pray that's where we would turn. I pray that we would be open and receptive to the things that you want to teach us and the things that you want to do. And again, I just come for this last, last time with the same request that I've had the last few weeks. If I said something, Lord, and it's not from you, because I know that there are godly people on the other side, I've been, and I've been told, and I can appreciate it, that I'm too black and white, and if I'm on a side and I'm wrong, I don't want my people misled or deceived, Lord. I pray that every, anything I said that doesn't agree with your, your word or your will would be completely disregarded, that you would protect anyone from receiving it. But if I spoke this morning, Lord, and it was from you, and it's your word that went forth, then I pray that people would be convicted and challenged, and it would be received as what you want to say to them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.